My name is Phil, if we haven't met before. Um, I'm married to Lizzie, we've got three kids, we're really easy to spot, we're the entirely ginger family. Um, you probably shouldn't assume, if, if you have ginger here, that you are in my family. We think we have other, <laughs> other ginger here people in this church, but it's, you're, it's a probably you know, fairly safe bet. Uh, that they'll be in my family because, uh, as I say, we are entirely ginger. Uh, uh, as Lou said, we're, we're, we're kicking off this um, new series uh, this morning, Lost in Thought, and today I'm going to talk about uh, our talk under the title, Lost in Thought, Searching for Greatness. Searching for Greatness. The world is full of claims to greatness. In almost every sphere of life that you can think of, there is a concept of greatness that is projected towards you. If you're a sport fan, you'll know that Scottish football has a particular strain of greatness, the great failure. Uh, And uh, this morning, uh, if you didn't see it, uh, there, there there was the Scottish rugby team uh, over in Japan playing Ireland and once again failing greatly uh, because it, but, but, but in, every, in every area there is this idea of greatness. We, we go and watch movies in the cinema and, and they project often an idea in, in, in kind of great fantasy films, The Lord of the Rings and you know, in, in films like Gladiator and, and Braveheart and things like that, there is a projection of greatness. Uh, There's a claim that is made. This is what a great person is. This is what a great man, this is what a great woman is. And in in politics too, you know, we have politicians who who are claiming to make their various nations great again. And and that idea of of greatness is is really at the heart of of how often how we see and how 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 we see that politics should be shaped. It's informed by, by a vision that we have about what greatness is and what it should look like. The same is true in, in, in the arts, uh, that, we, that we, have, we have a notion, we have a vision almost, often of what great art, of what great music should look like. And that informs the way we go about things in these Areas and, and really at the centre of, of all of these visions of greatness is, is this idea of glory. This idea of something of great renown. Something that kind of outlives perhaps yourself. That, that we would kind of, in some senses, make a name for ourselves that would live on beyond our lives. There's some notion, some vision of glory at the centre of every claim of greatness. And even, even in our secular age where, where some would say actually all claims of greatness and all claims of glory are, are kind of a bit redundant these days and, and it's all a bit of a nonsense, yet we still find that perhaps more than any other age in history... We, the way we engage with our jobs, the way we engage with our romantic relationships, with our studies and with our families often speaks of this desire for 
significance, for something that will outlive ourselves, for the ability to make a name for ourselves. It's, it's maybe the most common answer to the question for people standing in the queue for X Factor. You know, what are you doing here? Like, I just, I want to do something with my life. I want to be remembered. There's a, there's a vision of greatness and glory behind that kind of answer. What on earth could the Bible possibly have to say on this subject? Anything at all? Well, let's tr- turn, if you have a Bible, to Mark chapter 10. If you, if you haven't, don't worry, I'm going to read it out. Mark chapter 10. And this absolutely fascinating little story, this fascinating little encounter that we have between Jesus and his disciples on this subject of greatness. I'm going to be reading from verse 35 in Mark chapter 10. Okay, and James and John, the sons of the magnificently named Zebedee, Come up to him and say to him, that is Jesus, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptised with the baptism with which I am baptised? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, that's the other ten disciples, heard it, they began to be indignant. Maybe a few less polite things than indignant to. At James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's just quickly pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your promise to be present with us when we gather to your name. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are our great teacher. So I just pray for open hearts, Lord, this morning. I pray that you would open my heart and the hearts of all who are here. Lord, that we would hear your voice this morning speaking to us, that you would apply your words to our lives and you would change us as a result. 
Thank you, God. May this not just be an interesting talk, but may it be something that really transforms our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this story in many ways is about the dream of greatness. And they said to him in verse 7, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So here we have the disciples arguing and wanting to be great. Now what's interesting is that, I don't know about you, but that is not often an argument that I hear happening in church. I mean, maybe you've been in church for a long time. I've been a Christian for oh, 17 years now. And I don't think I've ever heard an argument about wanting to be the greatest. I've heard arguments about rotas. I've heard arguments about how we lay the seats out. I've even heard it this morning. But I haven't heard an argument about who is going to be the greatest. We tend more, and some of you may engage with this argument later today, argue about how long the preach should be. It's, um, it's helpful to us as we look at this passage to, to appreciate and think about how outrageous this request was from James and John. James and John were nobodies from Nowheresville. When Jesus came across them, they were just a bunch of guys. They were just a bunch of, the most of the disciples, in fact, were just a bunch of guys working a job beside a lake in the, in the kind of rural backwater on the edge of the Roman Empire. They were as far from the center of the action as you could possibly imagine. They were complete non-entities. They were so, the sorts of people who live and who die and a few years after they're gone, only a very, very small handful of people will even know that they were ever alive. And yet, here they are asking Jesus that they would sit at his left and right hand sides in his glory when he rules over the universe. I think we have, we have, to, we have to let that sink in for a second how outrageous this request is. How utterly absurd. It's, it's an impertinent request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You know, that's like the sort of thing my daughter says when we're standing outside the newsagents. I want you to buy me whatever I ask of you. You know, what, what that says is, I want your agreement up front. You know, I want the blank check. You know, and, and, and a smart parent will always kind of say, well, you know, let's, 
Let's go in, let's look around. You're not wanting to commit yourself too early to that kind of request. They want to be sitting next to Jesus and heaven, heaven, the right and the left hand side, signify the places of greatest honour. Who on earth did these people, these nobodies, think that they are? They wanted to sit with him in his glory. Can you imagine the glory of the one who threw the stars into space? The one who even right now is sustaining your beating heart? Who's keeping, holding all things together? The glory of this God. And they're saying we want to sit at your right and at your left in this glory. Can you imagine that? Now it's very easy for us to sit here and kind of shake our heads wisely. Maybe stroke our beards if we have one. And, and kind of say to ourselves, you know, gosh, these, these disciples, they were dreadfully immature. You know, thank goodness we've come a long way since then. You know, we've got our theology sorted out. We know what we're doing. You know, Glasgow Grace is here. We're changing the nation. You know, we wouldn't make such a foolish mistake. But I want us to stop and consider this morning that it is at least possible that the reason they argued and asked things that we did not or do not is because they have understood something about Jesus that we have not. An impertinent request. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. What's absolutely fascinating that in the very same chapter If you were to read another 15, 20 verses on, you'll find a blind man standing, uh, kneeling beside a road and shouting to Jesus. And these disciples say, oh, you know, shut that guy up. He's he's causing a bit of a racket. And Jesus says, no, 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 bring him here. And when he's standing in front of him, Jesus says this to him. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Think of the the breadth of that. The lavishness of that. The open-handedness of this God. What what do you want me to do for you? You know, not, not, well, I can see you're blind. So this is going to be a problem. And let me help you with that. That was not how that conversation went. What do you want me to do for you? It's a bit like me standing outside the newsagents. What sweet do you want me to buy you? You can just almost see your child's <coughs> mind exploding with the possibilities. Have we understood the breadth of his generosity for us? What do you want me to do for you? What about this idea that that they could be seated, they could be sitting with Jesus, you know, in heaven? I mean, where on earth would they get that idea from? 
Maybe they got it from Ephesians. Well, probably not Ephesians because it wasn't written at that point. But nevertheless, what, what, what Ephesians chapter 3 shows us is that this idea was, was present. It was, it was in the atmosphere of these early disciples. But God being rich in mercy, rich in mercy, the lavishness of his love, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Maybe these early disciples maybe hanging around with Jesus for a few years convinced them goodness, this man is immeasurably kind. Maybe we can ask anything. I wonder what you pray for and what you're asking for and what it says about what you think of him and how kind he is and how good he is and how generous he is. What about this idea of glory? I mean, right, okay, right. He's generous. You know, he'll give you a seat in heaven. I get it. But this idea, surely not this idea of glory. That is, I mean, utterly absurd. That must be a nonsense. And yet, John chapter 17, verse 22. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer just before he's going to go to the cross. These are the words of a dying man. They have this, that much significance. And what does he pray in that moment? He says this. The glory, praying to his Father in heaven, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. How glorious is Jesus? See, sometimes we hear these things and we think, we just let them wash over. You know, are you like me? Sometimes you read the Bible and it's just like a lot of words, like blah, 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 blah. And you think, I have no idea what that means. I'm not sure I can figure it out in the five minutes I've got before I'm going to go to work. And it's just like, oh, well, glory, and then you, and oh, and you think, what does that mean? Listen, this should, this should melt our tiny minds. Think about how glorious Jesus is. If you could even comprehend it for a moment. This, this extraordinary, wonderful, gracious God who's upholding the world even now, even the second, every minute of the day, keeping the planets in their orbits. How glorious is Jesus? This is, I'm just reading the actual, this is just what it says in the Bible. 
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. If you you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, do do you know that you are glorious? Do you know that? As you've got out of your bed this morning thinking, glorious. So some of you are looking at that like, that cannot be true. This has to be heresy. Listen, I'm literally just reading the Bible. That's what it says. The glory that I have, you have given me, I have given to them that may, they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking, I've had a terrible week this week. I've barely been a Christian this week. That you have loved them even as if you. How, how much do you think the Father loves Jesus? At this moment, he's just about to go to the cross and save the whole world. You know, it's like that's going to be like at least a 10, surely. You know what I mean, come on. It's going to be right up there. This is just what the Bible says, folks. What it says is that that the Father loves you. He loves you. Just as he will. Just in the same way as he loves Jesus. You just think about that. It's going to blow your mind. I tell you what, see if we really understood that. We might make the most ridiculous requests of this God. We may even find ourselves, nobody's from nowheresville, asking these outrageous things of Jesus. Maybe they weren't so dumb. Maybe they had understood something that we have not. I encourage you to reflect, reflect in these verses. Think about them. Get them in your head. Turn them over. Could it, be, could it be true? What's fascinating is that Jesus does not seem to rebuke the dream of greatness. He doesn't do what I would do. We're just going to say... Like laugh, and then after you stop laughing, say, <laughs> "Who do you think you are?" Just do that. He doesn't seem to rebuke the dream of greatness. And actually, what's interesting is that Paul, in his letters to churches, even when they're getting things horribly wrong, he never writes to them and say, says, "Who do you think you are, Corinthians?" You're doing what? He says something similar, but 
actually almost the opposite. And it's this, he says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you are loved? Don't you know that the Spirit of God lives within you? He doesn't rebuke the dream of greatness. But he does point out that it is distorted. You see, the G... And I'm going to have to go very quickly over this, this next bit. Jesus challenges the distorted view that the disciples have of their greatness. Of what greatness should look like. The disciples' vision of greatness is fundamentally about lording it over others. About dominating others. About sitting on top of the tree. On top of the hierarchy. And getting to tell others what to do. It's implied in, in, the, in the verses where he says... Uh, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The disciples' vision of greatness is one in which everybody is serving them. Every, you know, and, and sometimes that's our vision as well. It's like, see, what I want more than anything now is to just sit by a pool and to just ring a bell and for somebody to bring me a lovely drink. <laughs> Could be Ian and Lindsay right now on holiday. <laughs> Isn't it? It's like so often our idea of greatness is about somebody somewhere serving us. The problem with that is the problem that the disciples experience, which is that that kind of vision of greatness put some people on the top of the tree and a whole lot of people under it extremely jealous. Because of course there can only be one person on the top of the tree. There's only one person able to sit at his left and one at his right. There's only two spots. And James and John look as though they've got it in ahead of us. I wish I'd thought of that. It causes jealousy and mistrust. And in this story, what it also does is it reveals something about, despite the fact that these disciples are making this great request, that actually, deep within, there's an insecurity that maybe, maybe the, the riches of God are exhaustible. You know, there's a kind of finite amount of blessing to be dispensed. And once it's gone, sorry buddy, you're a bit late. And it leads to jealousy, to envy, to strife. If you're feeling jealous or envious of, of someone else, then I submit to you that at the core of it, that's the issue. The issue is that you have a small view, too small a view of who God is. There's, there's only one person who can be blessed and everyone else just has to get them a drink when the bell rings. 
He's more generous than that. Sons and daughters have permission to ask because they know that their father is good. Slaves who fear their master and have no relationship are too scared to ask anything in case they get clipped round the ear for being impertinent or too big for their boots. But Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? But the ultimate proof of the kind of poverty of this way of thinking is actually that the disciples, in a sense, are merely using Jesus to get what they really want in life. What they want is to be glorious and to be great. And the way they see of getting that is through Jesus. And sadly, tragically, the church is not immune to this. Sometimes we can, we can almost wield Jesus like a sword, like the, somehow... You know, we, we, we don't really want him, you know, but we, we, we want the kind of stuff that he can bring us in our life, the profile that he can bring us, perhaps. And these kind of fighting, this kind of fighting brotherhood of disciples should remind us of the older and younger brother in Luke 15. Another couple of brothers who are jealous and arguing. The younger brother who says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, I want all the stuff that you've got, but I don't really want to know you. Because out there in the world, that's where the good time is had. So give me my cup and I am out of here. And then the older brother who stays at home, who works obediently, who does everything that they're supposed to do, and yet also doesn't really want a relationship with his father. There are these competing images of greatness, but but neither of them really are concerned with knowing God and having a walk with him. So what then is the, is the true definition of greatness? If the disciples had a dream of greatness, which was wonderful, and then they had a, but their idea of greatness was distorted, what is the true definition of greatness? 
Well, verse 43 to 45, it shall not be this way among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom of many. The definition of greatness in the kingdom of God is this. Consecration. A life that is laid down for Jesus. Do you know, these films that we go and see that hold a view of greatness for us, Some of them are completely off, but just occasionally you come across one that actually makes this point brilliantly. And two that did that are the two that I mentioned at the start of this preach. Gladiator, which if you haven't seen, you definitely should. And Braveheart, which if you haven't seen, what are you doing with your life? This is Scotland. (laughs) But in both cases, in both of these films, A fascinating thing happens in the first act. What happens is that everything that these men have, everything that they are living for, is taken from them. In both cases, it's family. A wife is killed, a family is killed, and then they're kind of cast out into the world. But what they discover in these moments is that it's that very dying that allows them to be reborn in greatness. It's the very fact that they have everything taken away from them that allows them to be free from the constraints of this world. And so they go fearlessly into the battle. Why? Because you can't really kill a man who is already dead. Everything that they were living for, everything that they would have fearfully wanted to protect, everything that they would have been jealously guarding, has been taken from them. And so they have this extraordinary power in their weakness, in their loss. This is precisely what Paul talks about while he's languishing in jail. He says this, for me to live as Christ. And to die is gain. You know, I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, you get a little bit uncomfortable in these moments. There's something that swells within your heart when you watch Gladiator and Braveheart because the idea of of being free from this world and, and being able to be utterly committed and consecrated to a cause greater than yourself somehow enlarges your heart but it also makes you afraid because I know that my life isn't like that what I need and what 
what you need is a bigger vision of Jesus. This loving, generous, wonderful God who is good in every conceivable way and who in the end is making all things new. This ultimately is greatness. To know him and walk through this earth kind of unencumbered by the things that the world elbows to the top of the tree for because we know that we have all things already secure in him. So we're going to worship now. And as we worship, I don't want you to just sing songs. I don't want you to stand there and and wait for the time to pass. What I want you to do is engage with this God. If you were listening to me when I was talking about how much the Father loves you and thinking, oh gosh, I just don't get that then this is your moment to go to him with that. If you were listening when I was talking about kind of the squabblings and jealousies that we can get into, when we have that small, mean-spirited view of God, then this is your moment to go to him with that. And perhaps, even for some of you, when I'm talking about laying your life down, and living for him. Some of you are maybe thinking, I not. Have I ever done that? Has it been a long time since I've done that? Do I feel like I need to do that? This is your moment. You don't need fundamentally you do not need somebody to pray for you. There will be people praying. But you do not need somebody to pray for you. You can do this business with God. Because he's here, he's generous, and he loves you. Amen? Why don't we stand and pray while the band come back. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your incredible love and incredible generosity for us. To us, Lord, that gives this new vision of what greatness truly is. Lord... To serve others knowing that you have served us. To live our lives laid down to you, submitted to you, serving the world. Because we know that you have served us. Father, I pray for us now, Lord, as we come to you again. Lord, that you would change our lives, that you would... Give us a bigger view of who you are. And in that bigness, Lord, we would find our place in you. In Jesus' name.